This is the Collector Car Podcast, the home for the auto enthusiast. Join Greg Stanley as he applies over 25 years of insights and analytical experience to the collector car market. He will interview the experts and throw in some fun stuff as well. All right, welcome to the Collector Car Podcast. This is going to be a fun one. It took me a while to figure out if I wanted to do this or not, but this is the best, crappiest collector cars. I'm hoping this is one of many different editions. And for the very first inaugural edition, I have Josh Stegman. Josh, how you doing today, buddy? Greg, how are you, man? Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, man. We've met a couple of years ago now, I guess. And you're a previous guest. You were on Guess the Hammer, our live streaming yes. event. Yes. Added a lot of value to that with your knowledge of cars. So tell us a little bit about your knowledge of cars. Uh, what do you do and how come you know stuff about cars? Yeah, well, uh, I work for a company in Indianapolis called Motor Vault. We're a collector car dealership uh, with, a with a focus on consignment. You know, we do everything from uh, supercars to muscle cars to 80s enthusiast cars, a little bit of everything in between. And we're a backdraft racing dealer, which they make, you know, recreation Cobras. But uh, it's a small team. We've been around for three years. I've been there for two years and I've uh, been a car guy my whole life. Grew up here in Indianapolis, racing capital of the world. So got started with IndyCar, um, started with Hot Wheels cars and I just knew from day one I was going to be doing car stuff, and I've had a very, very uh, cool growing up with having some cool experiences working for Motor Speedway Museum and working for a friend of ours, uh, Mark Hyman, out in St. Louis for a couple summers, and um, Ken Lingenfelter up in Michigan, and uh, was able to land this really, really cool position being a, pretty much a sales manager and car specialist at uh, Motor Vault here in Indianapolis. Actually, that just triggered. I know where we met. We met in front of Lingenfelter's 1967 Cadillac at Auburn. Yes. And my client ended up buying. You were making it look perfect before I went across the block, right? Yes. Yeah, it was the black uh, the black Eldorado. Yes. <laughs> Still has it. Still has it. So Awesome. Um, yeah, that was a really cool car. So that's where we met. And then shortly after that, you moved to Indy, right? Yes. And then that's when we reconnected at uh, the Alt Park Concours. That's and, right. Um, that's how uh, you got to, got me out to Monterey for the first time. That's where that all that all kicked off. Yeah, yeah, awesome, man. Well, thanks for being again on the podcast. Now you texted me your list, <laughs> and just for a little bit of background, I came up with this idea. Believe it or not, thinking about Mercedes 300 SLs. Not that they're crappy cars, but if you ask an owner who has the Gullwing and who has the Roadster, no one wants to drive the Gullwing. You know, because it overheats, it's so hot, it's just stifling visibility. You know, yes, it's got the incredibly cool going doors. I would have wanted going, but every single one of them always says, well, the Roadster is a much better car. And yet, because of the iconic going and the racing history and, you know, all the stuff I can go into about goings, right? They're one, the $2 million cars nowadays, you know, they're one point million dollar forever. Now they're creeping up and they've been creeping up consistently. So you're lucky to get one at 1.5 nowadays. So that was kind of what me, made me think about this. And as I do some of my email blasts, I'm like, oh, I love to have an 83 Isuzu iMark diesel. Well, that's just a crappy car. I mean, it's, it's not a collector <laughs> car. That's just a crappy car. So um, I started thinking, you know what? There are some collector cars out there that are actually pretty crappy, yeah. as you know, but they're still collectible for one reason or another. So why don't we go down your list? Do you want me to read them off or you want to just go 
based on what you remember? We'll start right into it. We'll jump into another goaling icon. Yes. Back to the Future DeLorean, one of the coolest looking cars of all time. But what an absolute turd of a car. <laughs> There's yep. lower than get out, you know, at 130 horsepower on a good day. Um, because what they're a French drivetrain, aren't they? Right? Yeah, it's like a French drivetrain Renault straight yep. five in the back. You know, it's a quasi never made it to fruition, never fulfilled DeLorean's vision. Uh, there's a famous story about, I guess, Johnny Carson of The Tonight Show got stuck in it once because the Goldwing doors wouldn't open. Yeah, I agree with you. Iconic, great collector cars. You know, they have been appreciating lately, especially as that generation gets older and can't afford to buy those cars. But uh, I would agree with you. That is a crappy collector car. Because <laughs> if you think about it, you really don't see many of them on the road, even at shows. Um, you know, it's very, very uncommon when you see one actually driven. Most of the times you see them, they're in a museum, they're at a higher level show, and they are being displayed, not really being driven there. Yeah, you know what? That's a good point. I've I, I've never seen one on the road, like you said. I do think the three most collectible DeLoreans outside of the movie cars would be, I believe they made three gold-plated cars. Yeah. Uh, at the like the last three, something to that effect. Also, when I was researching uh, cars that are MIA, million dollar plus cars that are MIA, I found a DeLorean. I didn't find it, but I, I discovered a DeLorean that is missing in action from Back to the Future. Really? And I would love to do a podcast episode trying to track this thing down. It was in the uh, Planet Hollywood in Honolulu, I believe, in Hawaii. And when they liquidated and the company went out of business, <clears throat> it was sold at an auction. You know, all the equipment, everything was liquidated. It was from the movie, but it was a shell of a DeLorean. So not one of the more expensive ones that are worth yeah. more today. But as far as I can tell, nobody knows where that car is. So if you know where the Honolulu <laughs> DeLorean Back to the Future shell is, please let me know. So Maybe it found itself a Corvette chassis, hit 88 miles an hour and just vanished <laughs> back to 55. That's what it would take. Yeah. Just not a Corvette from that generation. No. <laughs> uh, we could go down a whole C3 crappy car conversation yeah. here, but we won't. All right. So your next car on your list is one that you had as a daily driver there when I met you on Indy one time, right? Yes. Yes. The Pontiac Fiero, a car that GM gave up on way too early because I was spoiled with a really good one. I was spoiled with a gold on gold 87 GT with the honeycombs that was two owners, 57,000 miles, you know, it was loaded up. It's a really, really pretty car, GT being the V6. They really didn't get that car nailed down until the last about three years from 86 until 88. 88 they really redid a lot of stuff they um, redid the suspension where it was his own unique suspension for that car and the reason why they i think part killed that car off is that the new redesigned gt from 88 was so quick on the road courses since the suspension was all new and not chevette mm. that it was actually outrunning the c4 corvette on road courses it was significantly faster so they're like we don't want a little six-cylinder pontiac knocking down our flagship but the main issue was is when they built that car initially in 1984 is they pumped out way too many way too quick and they didn't have everything 
buttoned up. They had the fuel line issues. The car started bursting into flames. Right. Woefully underpowered. Um, you know, they had build quality issues and just, they were, they were really known as a poor man sports car that really wasn't kind of completed. Um, and it really tarnished what that car was. Um, and unfortunately it wasn't until the very end when Pontiac finally got it right. It was a great car in 88 and then they shot it dead. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because well, he's been doing GM things. <laughs> Yeah, that's the road test we need to do. 88 C4 Corvette versus a Pontiac Fiero GT. That would be a fun comparison right there. Yes. Yeah, okay. And those have been appreciating, as you know, recently. Now, was that one sold through uh, your day job? Yeah, yeah, because it was uh, it was technically a company car for three, four months, which is awesome. I love that car. Oh, it yeah. was just so shocking how well the car handled um and felt for an 80s general motors product it just was it was absolutely shocking so we did get you know a good uh, you know chunk of coin for it for sure um but again it was a really nice example it's got to be a gt or a formula or you know lower mile pace car but yeah. there are plenty of fieros that are basket cases right. that's the other thing. there are a lot of them out there but a lot of them aren't running they're sitting in backyards there's normally three of them per backyard because they're all parts cars for each other yeah, yeah so it's again cars like that's finding the really minty nice ones with all the right options that's what it comes down to yeah it's not good if you have three fieros and you can't remember which one was the parts car <laughs> no, no. Oh, boy. yeah that's bad <laughs> yeah all right well your next one your next one's a big car it's a big collector car i mean it's half a million dollars so why do you say the jaguar xj220 is a piece of crap well <laughs> i've ridden in one briefly it was violently noisy violently rough so you got that part for one but again it was not intended for comfort but those cars are one of the most finicky to work on one of the most impossible hard cars to work on find parts for because they used was it was the Rover um, V6 uh, rally engine is what they basically used in those. And up until about 10 years ago, there was only one shop in the entire United States that was certified by Jaguar to work on those cars. And it was in Muncie, Indiana, of all places. Yeah, yeah. Muncie Imports and Classics. So it's just like, if there's one place in the country to work on them and anytime you work on them, it's what, $50,000, $100,000, you know, just for routine maintenance. I mean, it's just, it, it doesn't really make sense to drive them ever. Right. Yeah. And it's unfortunate because they were, they were a marvel when they came out. It's the fastest car in the world, looked awesome, sounded great, but when the car's a ticking time bomb every time you move it it's just it's it's not good yeah you know i think now i might be wrong on this but i thought it was actually faster at least in top speed than the f40 and the 959 porsche correct um and it was interesting is you know when jaguars first came in out came out with the xj xk nomenclature was the xk 120 minute went 120 miles an hour the 140 150 this one's 220, so you would think it went 220 miles an hour. Turns out it topped out at 217. So it should be called the XJ217. <laughs> 220 yeah. sounds better, but that was probably when they had the V12 versus having to settle for the 6. Um, interesting thing we're seeing in the auction world, though, is there's a lot of F40s. There's 
comparatively speaking out there as well as 959s and so when someone wants something unique and different from that era that's a supercar that's where they go after the xj220 because you just never see them or rarely and they're very good looking they've aged, yes, aged very well stunning. yeah yeah very cool all right this next one honestly did surprise me this is after i guess i don't want to say my generation what they were around a WRX STI. So why is that a crappy car? Because they've been going through the roof. I understand some issues with some of the generations, like their engine block or something. But tell me why, in your mind, is the Subaru WRX STI a crappy collect one of the best crappy collector cars? Well, first off, they have a huge cult following, which is awesome. They obviously are a very unique part of the collector car world, given that they can be daily drivers basically anywhere in the world you know since they're basically all-wheel drive rally bred rally history you know very simple car in you know most standpoints but again when you put <clears throat> those turbochargers on those cars there are a handful of them that have a serious issue of for one detonating the engines and having head gasket issues and just leaking oil, burning oil like crazy. And the other part of the problem is that um, there's a lot of them that get really, really heavily abused because there's a, um, you know, there's so many people that can afford them because they're cheaper. So <clears throat> a lot of people will treat them like a cheaper car, even though they are a specialty car that should be run on premium gas, should be taken care of as a sports car but they're getting treated kind of like a, almost like a V6 charger in a way, which, right. you know, that's where that falls into, but it's, it's, there's a lot of them out there, but they, they have some known mechanical issues and they just don't get treated right. And then they don't get fixed. Right. And then the other thing is, is they get modified heavily, many of them. Yeah. And when you really start putting more boost on those stock engines, is really when they have issues. So if you don't build the engines on those cars to compensate for the boost on them, then you're just going to get detonated blocks everywhere. <laughs> so yeah. awesome car, great cult classic. Oh, actually, multiple of my personal friends, at least three of them, own WRXs or WRX STIs, and they're really cool. But yeah, they are... Um, they are a unique bit and also obviously rust issues is another thing too because cheap japanese metal from that standpoint too so right. yeah. they fall in a unique category well you gave me quite a list of reasons that's a crappy car okay yeah no i get it and uh i know <laughs> the best thing there is to do you know get the pre-purchase inspection if you're going to buy one and uh obviously the best of the best i think would be the b22s which only you know there's not that many of those so yeah but they, they only made what a couple hundred 22 b's and and you can't touch touch one of those for under one hundred and fifty thousand with one with a replacement engine and low and you know high miles. Right. Yeah. right. The really nice ones go for well over, um, well over two hundred thousand. You know, there's a couple yeah. that sold for over three hundred thousand. Yeah, just nuts. Yep. All right, we got two more here. Well, kind of two more. So the next one, I do agree with you. First gen Viper. Oh. I actually saw one of those the other day. Gorgeous <laughs> raw uh kind of crazy this one had the uh you know the inserts the uh the window inserts no uh no door handle no you know all that kind of stuff so tell me why why is this one on your list well it's a very cool car very fast 
Obviously, Carol Shelby's involvement makes that very special. But to put it in simple terms, it is a fatter Shelby Cobra with early 1990s Chrysler build quality. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it is the epitome of plastic, crappy, not good finish, cheap everything. It's just the build quality on those cars are awful. Obviously, it's a V10, so, you know, it's going to be interesting with maintenance. But, um, again, if you do your routine maintenance, you replace all your seals, you do everything you're supposed to, they'll be fine. You know, it's going to be almost like um, servicing a cheaper Lamborghini Diablo. You know, it's easier to find parts, going to be easier to, you know, maintain but the build quality on those cars are so violently bad. <laughs> it's, it, there's, there's really nothing to compare from that because they're just, they just rattle, bang, clank. There is very, very little that makes you feel even remotely comfortable in those. I think you'll have more comforts and better build quality in an original 60s Cobra. Yeah, you know, and it's interesting because I actually ran across one. I'll throw a picture up here in a kind of in a barn but more in a warehouse the other day and i fell in love with it i just thought it was so cool you know if you're gonna i actually really like the 96 uh gts the blue the with the car. white stripes you know yes. and the the chrome wheels your traditional package that's the one i want uh but and i really appreciate a gen 2 correct yeah gen Cause, 2 cause yeah. they upgraded it a lot by then right right and so this was a gen 1 with the uh window inserts you know no handle what was interesting, though, when I asked about the history of the car, apparently, you know, they're just a handful, you know. And so this car twice was slightly wrecked to where it just spun out of control with two different people. And the second time was serious enough. They had to put a rear clip on the car. Um, and the interesting fact was, is apparently the first handful, I don't know how many, but the first handful of Vipers that came out of the factory, I guess that would be 94 92 was the first one. 92. Anyways, I don't know where the break off is, but the battery originally was behind the, the driver's wheel, rear wheel. And oh. yeah, and then they changed it to inside the trunk. And so this was one of the rare rear wheel battery locations. Mm -hmm. But when they had the clip replaced, they put the trunk mounted one in, which easier for maintenance and stuff, but it kind of kills the originality of the car. Right. Uh, especially if that's a rare aspect of the car is having the battery in that certain spot. So, and the change it back would be a big old headache. So, yeah. you know, if you hear I got a Viper recently, it means I got a good deal. <laughs> so, Rock on. all right. The next one kind of falls into that Viper for different reasons, bucket. <laughs> but now you changed this on me. When we talked about it via text, you said any, this is very controversial here, any 1960s muscle car, but you changed it to what most 1960s muscle cars? Yes, and it's mainly <laughs> from the standpoint of they are awesome to look at. They sound great. They are icons. They're a part of true Americana. But almost, not all, but most American muscle cars cannot handle or break worth anything. They are absolutely just wallow over the road. Steering feedback is terrible. They are not necessarily the best driving things out there. And the car that kind of made me change that a little bit is that, so you obviously got your big fat American muscle cars. You got your, you know, your Chevelles, you got your Buick Grand Sports, your Oldsmobile 442s. 
those cars are boats. Those cars, you know, no matter what, won't handle great at all. But when you get to the level of like the pony cars, which would include the Mustang, some of those earlier Mustangs, especially with, you know, suspension upgrade, actually do handle pretty decently. So you can't really knock those for that. Like, for example, I know you just came across a, a Mustang, which is now in your stable. Um, and especially if it had the Shelby equipment on it, it was not a bad handling car comparatively to other American cars of that, uh, that, uh, that time frame. I mean, obviously the Corvette's in its own ballpark. It was built to be a sports car. Right, right. But the muscle cars were not intended to be taking corners quickly. And that really, really hurt because when you have a 400 horsepower car, and you need to at some point slow down and corner thing feels like it's going to tip over and it's just too, yeah. that's terrifying. <laughs> you know, and, and I would actually agree with you, you know, um, like a base Mustang, like I, I got a nice little hypo K code. I found it under a tarp. I'll do a little video about it. Um, uh, that one did have upgraded suspension, Shelby brakes, you know, uh, disc brakes, you know, stuff that you'd want. So it can go around curves and such, like you said, but like the base Mustang, which I absolutely love, just to build quality on the car, you know, you, they're just mass market, you know, they're just making those as quick, quickly as they can. You shut the door. It just sounds horrible when you shut that door. And yeah. I even have a, you know, I, I compared it to a, I think it was a 68 442. That door slams so much better just from a quality build versus the Ford Mustang. And I'm a, I'm a Mustang fan, you know, and like, right. and, and everything, like I just got rid of my 99, 911. That's that 911 granted, 30 years later, 20 years later, but just seeing that build quality is so tight. So everything else, um, it's really interesting, but like, to your point, I agree with you. A lot of the muscle cars from the sixties and early seventies cannot handle the exceptions would be like the, uh, CUDA AAR, you know, that's yeah. made for racing the boss 302s that's made for racing the Z 28s, you know, uh, but those are few and far between. So yeah, yeah. I would There's definitely that's why I changed it because there is a specific group of those cars that were individually produced with a little extra mustard to really help those cars. But man, the majority of those, I mean, if they don't have modern disc brakes on them and if they don't have, you know, modern suspension on their kosher as is, I definitely get a little bit timid driving them. I still enjoy it, but I don't enjoy them the same way that I would if a car had been in period, you know, upgraded with all the factory bits or like what a lot of people are doing today, you know, like resto modding, you know, it's, yeah. there's a reason for it as much as I love being a purist about stuff. You know, I love a true original numbers matching, you know, everything is correct car, but if you're going to go out and drive something and enjoy it and planning on driving it a lot, put new disc brakes on it, put a new five-speed transmission in it. If the motor's not great, put a new fuel-injected engine in it. It's going to feel similar, but better, a lot safer, and you still have the exact same look. So right. I fully understand why um, uh, people do that. It's something I personally will do when I end up buying something of that nature because I would love a 67 Mustang Fastback with, uh, with a Coyote and a five-speed. I mean, that would be awesome, but... Uh, that's, I guess, a, a topic for uh, for another podcast is um, the resto mods and when to and when not to modify. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think there's a whole uh, 
becoming quickly already out there uh resto mod aftermarket of you know resale yep. you know so these cars selling for at the at the time a low price was 250 now you know 300 seems to be a low price and up to 600 grand now and right. that's for the first time they've been out you know brand new you know three years later when they've been driven some i'm curious to see how that resale value happens on those cars and it's already starting to happen right and, uh, that goes you know that will play towards you know the quality the name of the builder quality right. of the parts that kind of stuff so what so Thanks for being on our first episode of the best crappiest. Uh, one, I, I do want to give an honorable mention because I can't probably mention our first episode of this without mentioning the Lamborghini Countach. Uh, what is your thought on the Countach? Is that one of the best crappiest collector cars ever? Yes, because it's one of the most iconic design cars <laughs> of all time. It is probably the single most posterized car of all time. Oh. Even with people like I'm 26, even people my age, it doesn't matter what, you know, it's a Lamborghini, even if you're not wow. a car person. So from that standpoint, they're awesome. But from what I've heard, I've never been in one yet. I hope to change that at some point. I heard they drive like a truck. They drive terrible. They have zero visibility. And the experience behind the wheel is actually a letdown comparative to, say, for instance, an F40 to a Testarossa you know, to a uh, Lotus is free, whatever you may have. So I, I would agree with that for sure. From the driving standpoint of it, um, obviously the, the looks in the iconic part of that car will keep it right at that flirtation point of, is it crappy or is it not? It'll always, always be a debate on that one. Yeah. I was in a collection in out in Illinois, middle of nowhere, uh, in you know corn country and the guy had a countach and he he insisted that i sit in it which was cool really really hard to get into really hard to get out of and he's like this car drives like a drain a grain truck in the same sentence he said but i'll never sell it you know it's just it's that the poster car you know um he also has a diablo and he said the difference between those two cars even though structurally there's a lot of similarities but all the stuff that they fixed between those two cars is unbelievable he said the diablo is so much more of a joy to drive much more of an everyday car versus a countach which he said is basically horrible but he'll never get rid of it <laughs> oh yeah put it put in the the main staple of a collection put those doors up yeah. everybody will, will go to that car take photos the whole 10 yards that car will have that as long as as long as cars are on a road and even past that they that car will always be an icon no no matter what happens yeah well i appreciate you being on the podcast tell our listeners the best way to find you do you have an ig handle where do you work what's the website yes. yeah so it's uh, our website for our dealership is www.motorvault.com we are on instagram as indie motor vaults and then we are just motor vault on facebook uh, we're growing our YouTube page a little bit. We're starting to do kind of a little bit more of something really fun, which obviously from you knowing me a little bit, I love going to auctions. I love being in the depths of everything. And um, we just started recently um, going to auctions, taking my video guy with us and um, really kind of getting the backstage access of what it feels like to be there, watching the cars go across, getting some commentary, looking at all the cars coming through the the stage in lines. And we did that at uh, worldwide auctioneers, uh, Auburn for our first one. And it was, it was fun. So 
this um we got Mika Mindy coming up here, which whenever this will be posted will be obviously in the future, but Mika Mindy will be another one and hoping to do more of those of really kind of taking in uh, what the collector car auction side of the car scene really is all about. So we're growing, we're having fun and uh, we're enthusiasts first things first. So that's what it's all about. All right, man. Well, thanks so much. I do appreciate it. Yeah, Greg, you bet, man. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Collector Car Podcast. Don't forget to give us a nice rating on iTunes and be sure to follow us on Instagram and everywhere else at the Collector Car Podcast.